Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is Sunday, our group learning program, where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series, The Words of the Buddha. We're in volume one of this book series, progressing through the group learning program, and we've just restarted. So anybody who might be joining us for the first time, this is an excellent time to join this program because we've just restarted it from the very beginning, and we're doing a three-part series discussing the Eightfold Path. Last week, we discussed the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path, and this week we're discussing the moral conduct. We're going to be discussing right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then next week, we're going to be covering the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path, which includes right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So I'm very pleased that you've decided to join because these three classes over these three Sundays is going to give you a a very good overview of what the Path to Enlightenment is, while also exploring the teachings in a lot of detail. Because typically, as we go through the group learning program, I will cover the Eightfold Path in one class. But here at the beginning of this group learning program, I covered in three classes so that we can break it apart and go into each individual aspect of the teachings in detail. And we actually use the words of the Buddha as we're progressing and learning. It's really important to understand that everything that the Buddha taught is guidance. They're not rules. They're not commandments. They're not things that you're required to follow. But instead, this individual awoke to enlightenment over 2,500 years ago. And then he dedicated the rest of his life to sharing the guidance that led to his enlightenment. And that's what he did for the next 45 years of his life, a total of 80 years. So what we've got in his original teachings is what did he discover as part of his path to enlightenment and what was it that he understood and what is it that he practiced in order to get to enlightenment so this eightfold path that we investigate and that is part of the path to enlightenment or is the path to enlightenment starts with right view and right intention this makes up the wisdom section of the eightfold path this is what we covered last week and right view is all about understanding the four noble truths and remember you shouldn't be believing anything that you learn in the buddhist teachings because belief doesn't actually lead to enlightenment it's only when you learn reflect and practice that you can discover the truth and that will help you to acquire wisdom you need to independently verify the teachings. so i helped people who attended the class in who listen to the replays, understanding how to learn, reflect, and practice the teachings of the three universal truths and the four noble truths as part of right view. 
and then we went into write intention. If you haven't been part of that class yet, it's all recorded, so you can go to YouTube, you can go to Facebook, or you can go to our podcast, and you'll be able to take in that content when you're ready to do that. But today we're really gonna focus on right speech, right action, and right livelihood. This is the middle section of the Eightfold Path and it discusses the moral conduct. When Gautama Buddha was first coming in contact with a brand new student, he would always start them out with moral conduct because if our moral conduct is off, it's very difficult to build mental discipline and build other aspects of these teachings. So he would always encourage students to develop their moral conduct. Of course, right view is very important. You wouldn't be able to actually progress on this path without actually understanding right view. So I always start students with understanding right view, the three universal truths and the four noble truths. And then we start talking about the moral conduct. That's really important in order to clean up your life practice. Because as long as you're making unwholesome decisions through your moral conduct, you're causing harm in the world and therefore harm is going to come back to you. This is part of the natural law of gamma. So everything the Buddha teaches, it is centered on this eightfold path. That's the core and central teaching, and then everything plugs into that. But what's really at the heart of all of this is the natural law of gamma. I also call all of the Buddhist teachings the natural laws of existence. So in order to understand the Buddhist teachings and what he's guiding and what he's helping you to do, it's important to understand the natural law of gamma. You might have heard this referred to as karma. That's the Sanskrit language where gamma is the Pali language. Pali is the source of the original teachings of the Buddha. His teachings are captured in what we call the Pali canon. This is no longer a spoken language today. The Pali has been translated into English and that's what we study as part of our teachings and we go back to the original source teachings in the Pali Canon. The natural law of gamma is oftentimes misunderstood. So what I'd like to do as we embark on this journey to understanding the Buddhist teachings over the next seven months is to ensure right here at the beginning that you have a beginning understanding of the natural law of gamma. And then we're going to explore it even deeper when we get into chapter nine of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. The way that you can think about the natural law of gamma is cause and effect or action and result. It's essentially the results of your decisions. There's some cause, there's some decision that we make, and then there's an effect, or there's some action and there's some result. Those decisions that we make are either going to be wholesome decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes, or they're gonna be unwholesome decisions that lead to unwholesome outcomes. And what the Buddha is doing through his teachings is he's providing you the guidance and helping you to see how to make wise decisions that are wholesome, which lead to wholesome results. So this natural law of gamma, it's not punishment and rewards. There's no being, there's no entity, there's no universe that is dishing out punishment and rewards in accordance to what they think is important for us. Instead, it's our own decisions that lead to certain results. For example, if you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, you're gonna see that you have a very easy time to make friends and maintain healthy relationships because you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. So people are gonna be interested to be friends with you. It's your decision 
to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. And therefore, people's decision is going to be, hey, I like this person. I would like to spend time with them. Whereas if you were impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, then what you're going to find is your relationships are going to be very strained. You're going to have a very difficult time making friends and maintaining friends because of the cause and effect. Your decision to be impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful is going to produce a effect or a result that people aren't going to be interested in spending time with you because of the way that you interact. So this is just a simple way to think about the natural law of gamma as cause and effect or action and result, the results of our decisions. It's our life, it's our decisions, it's our results. So for you, it's your life, your decisions, your results. As you make decisions in your life, they're going to produce a certain result. And what the Buddha is doing through the Eightfold Path and all of his other teachings is he's pulling back the covers and helping you to understand this natural law. And then you shouldn't believe this. You should be able to observe his teachings, learning those, reflecting on them, and then practicing them to independently verify that when you bring your practice up to what he's providing guidance on, that you'll see that your personal and professional relationships will blossom, and you'll see the condition of your mind gradually improve, where it will become more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy as it moves closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. So you'll have the truth for yourself that you can see by independently verifying his teachings that they are indeed the truth and then they're working to improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life as discontentedness gradually diminishes. And you need to discover this through your own practice by independently verifying the truth and acquiring this wisdom. You've done the same thing as it relates to other natural laws too. This is the natural law of gamma. There's all these natural laws of existence, which is what the Buddha is teaching. But the natural law of gravity is something that you didn't understand when you were first born. And for the first many years of your life, you didn't understand the natural law of gravity. All you knew is that when you stood up, you had trouble and you fell back down because the muscles in your legs weren't strong enough and you didn't have your balance. And sometimes you would fall so hard, you might cry or you might hit your head. You might have even broken your toys because you put them in a certain place and they fell and broke. Or you might have knocked over a glass when you were four years old, six years old, eight years old, and you cried because of this situation of your misunderstanding and your lack of wisdom of the natural law of gravity. But gradually, slowly but surely, you learned about this natural law. You saw the truth for yourself that when you hold a certain object and you drop it, it falls. And you can independently verify that there's this gravity. And more and more, you became aware of this natural law of gravity and you started making wiser decisions. You started tying your shoes. You started looking down at the ground, at the surfaces. You started getting up a little bit slower or more calm. You even learned how to ride a bike. You put your special objects in certain places because of this wisdom that you had of the natural law of gravity. You started functioning in the world very differently. And now with this wisdom, you can live peacefully with this natural law of gravity. You can travel all over the world if you'd like, because now you understand the natural law of gravity and you can do that peacefully. Well, the unenlightened mind has been doing the same thing with these natural laws of existence and the natural law of gamma. 
you're affected by these natural laws, whether you know about them or not. Just like when you were three years old, you didn't know about the natural law of gravity, but you were still affected by it. So this natural law of gamma, you're affected by this, whether you're aware of it or not. So the more awareness of it, the more wisdom that you gain of this natural law of gamma, then you can make wise decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes. But if you lack the understanding and you lack the wisdom of this natural law, then you're going to continue to struggle and continue to have difficulties in your personal and professional relationships. And the condition of your mind is going to be affected by not having the training in these natural laws of existence. So as we progress and talk about moral conduct as it relates to right speech, right action, and right livelihood, it's important for you to understand that what the Buddha is doing is sharing guidance with you to help you understand this natural law. So then on your own, you can independently verify the truth, start practicing this, and then you see the results for yourself that the condition of your mind and the condition of your relationships in your life continues to improve. So you shouldn't think about anything that the Buddha taught as rules or commandments or laws or anything like that. But instead, it's him pulling back the covers and showing you these natural laws, particularly the natural law of gamma, more and more. And as you gain understanding of this natural law, then you'll be able to make wiser decisions because you independently verified the truth for yourself and you see that the teachings are working and you can observe that your mind and your relationships continue to improve. I'm going to pause here and see if you guys have any questions before we move into talking about right speech, right action, and right livelihood, because I'd like to see if there's any questions around the natural law of gamma. The way that you ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Hello, Dr. Uh, I'm seeing uh, some people talking about something called law of attraction. Uh, as if you're thinking about something, if you're thinking about good things, so good things will be attracted to you. Is this what you are referring here uh, as the law of karma? No, absolutely not. To me, the natural law of attraction isn't real because nothing can happen where you just think about it and you manifest something in the world. There has to be some action that produces a result. There has to be a cause that produces an effect. So while in modern times we talk about and some people discuss and some people teach the natural law of attraction, to me there's no substantial evidence that this is truth because we can independently verify the natural law of gamma through the Buddhist teachings and independently verifying the teachings for ourselves. we can see the truth that we can't just think about getting a new job and then the new job occurs. Instead, we have to put together a nice resume. We have to submit that. We have to have polite conversations on the phone. We have to look a certain appearance when we go for a job interview. We have to have certain wisdom and conduct ourselves in a polite manner in the job interview. Then maybe we need to follow up after the job interview. There's various decisions that we need to make in order to acquire a job. We can't just manifest it in the world and we can't just think about something 
like a new job and then go into a job interview, talk rough and harsh to people and then expect to get a job. Instead, it's the natural law of gamma that is determining the cause and effect, the results that we experience. But remember, it's not a being, it's not an entity, it's not a mystical, magical force that's controlling anything. It's just the way things work in the world. It's that human beings, when there's politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect, they enjoy being around that person. And when there's impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespect, people don't like being around that. That's just a very basic, simple example for you so that you can see that there's not just one being or one entity or any kind of universal force that's dishing out punishment and rewards. Instead, it's our decisions and individual beings in the world that are making decisions in line with how we choose to conduct ourselves. And when we understand these natural laws, specifically the natural law of gamma, now we can make wiser choices. Because when we don't understand what is right speech based on the natural law of gamma, then we're going to speak in the way that we think is best but it doesn't necessarily always work out. And that's why we have arguments and conflicts and difficulties. Or we might think that we're having wholesome bodily actions, but until we understand the natural law of gamma related to bodily action, we could be out there causing harm in the world without the wisdom that we're doing that. And even though we don't have the wisdom that we're causing harm in the world, harm is still going to come back to us. This natural law of gamma in the Buddhist teachings aren't based on whether we're aware of them or not. What he's doing is he's just describing what exists in the world. And that's why his teachings are just as applicable today as they were 2,500 years ago, because he described these natural laws and those natural laws haven't changed. So exactly the way he described them 2,500 years ago, they still exist in that same exact way today. So as we learn them, then we can actually practice and see the truth. But this law of attraction doesn't really have merit in my view. So you're saying that uh, it's uh, if we are learning and knowing what is wholesome and we did this, this is what changes our life and gets it better and better? Yes, we've been making decisions all through our life before we get on this path that we thought were wholesome decisions but they weren't 100% wholesome because you didn't understand this natural law of gamma. And because you've been making decisions in an unwholesome way, there's unwholesome things that come back to you. And that's why you're struggling and having difficulties because as you make decisions, you think it's a really good decision, but you don't know with 100% certainty. So when you make decisions, then what comes back to you is the unwholesomeness. And if you make wholesome decisions, wholesomeness comes back to you too. But until you're actually enlightened, you don't have full wisdom of this natural law of gamma. So therefore, you are making unwholesome decisions in the world because you lack understanding of this natural law of gamma. Just like when you were a child, you were making decisions sometimes to tie your shoes, but other times you weren't. So when you tied your shoes, you didn't trip and fall. But other times when you weren't paying attention and you didn't tie them so well and your shoes came undone, that's when you tripped and fell. You had the results of your decisions. So the same thing is with our speech, our actions, our livelihood. There are certain decisions that we make that we think are wholesome and we get certain wholesome results with that. But then there are certain things that are unwholesome that we don't even realize it 
and deeply studying the Buddhist teachings, you then can understand it, and then you'll make wiser decisions, but you still need to clean up all the decisions that you made in the past. So it's not like you can learn this today, snap your fingers, and you're going to be making perfect decisions from here on out. Instead, you need to gradually learn the teachings, gradually train in them, gradually practice them, and then you'll gradually see the results as you're making wiser and wiser decisions about your life and your life choices. Then you'll start cleaning up your life because you're cleaning up your mind and how you look at the world. Thanks, sir. Let's go to Marcy. Welcome, Teacher David at Basum. Um, so, uh, teacher, I'm, I want to make sure that I have this clear in my head. We have a thought, and that thought does not become a form of wholesome or unwholesome karma until an action is taken, i.e. either by speech or physical action. You can produce gamma with just thoughts as well. But when you move that into speech and action, that's when you're overtly causing harm to beings other than yourself. So you could have certain thoughts that are destructive and negative self-talk, and that's unwholesome gamma too because you haven't made the choice in the past to train the mind. So this negative self-talk and this degrading that's in the mind that just rumiates and rumiates and rumiates and makes you feel diminished and degraded, that's your unwholesome gamma as well. But once you start moving into speech and actions, that's when you're causing harm to other beings. And now those beings are then going to experience your harm. And now harm is going to come back to you as a result. So you significantly either improve your gamma by practicing wholesomeness through your speech, actions, and livelihood, or you can significantly damage your gamma in producing unwholesome results through your speech, actions, and livelihood because now you're interacting with other beings. And this is going to cause difficulties in your life because the more you're out there making decisions without the wisdom of the natural law of gamma, you're going to be producing unwholesome results. And um, to follow up that, so when we do um, the mindful breathingness uh, and that concentration and doing that let the letting go, it's the letting go of the intent that we are establishing so that we don't act out in speech and action? Is, is that what Gautama Buddha was trying to teach us? With the breathing mindfulness meditation, you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, which is one of the three unwholesome roots. So all unwholesome gamma is going to be produced through craving, anger, and ignorance. These are the three unwholesome roots or the three poisons or the three fires. We're going to be talking about these in chapter eight because all unwholesome decisions are made through and tainted and polluted through craving, anger, and ignorance. And what you're doing is this path to enlightenment. What you're doing is you're transforming the mind to no longer function through craving, anger, and ignorance, but instead function through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom which is the exact opposites of craving, anger, and ignorance. So these are the three wholesome roots, which is generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So this eightfold path and all the other teachings that the Buddha is sharing with you, it's helping you to transform the polluted mind of craving, anger, and ignorance to this purified mind of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. 
and it takes gradual training. The Eightfold Path is breaking it down into individual steps, but we also talk about it as a high level of these three poisons, three unwholesome roots, or three fires. And then we also get that even deeper when we talk about the 10 fetters, which is going to be part of chapter three. So each piece of this goes together and connects together. So it's the Eightfold Path that is going to help you build up your practice. This is the beginning part of understanding how to improve your decision making. And then later in chapter eight, we will go into discussing it from the standpoint of these three poisons or three unwholesome roots. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Let's go to Miranda. Yes, sir. On Facebook, Bruce Benko asked, I am noticing that all of the Buddhist teachings on the natural laws of existence are intertwined with each other and that none of them stand alone. Am I seeing this correctly? Yes, 100%. It's a complete comprehensive package. This is why it's very challenging when a student says, you know, teacher, I'm having anxiety. You know, how do I fix that? Well, you got to learn the whole path to fix it. There's not just one answer that it's not just plug and play, but it's a comprehensive package that the Buddha taught. So you need to learn from beginning to end and practice all of that in order to drastically improve the mind and get to enlightenment. But you can have some marginal improvements where if somebody's having some anger, hatred, you know, they can be doing some loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness because that's a direct antidote for something like anger. But if they're not also understanding craving, desire, attachment, and breathing mindfulness meditation, then the loving kindness meditation is only going to be so beneficial. So the way that I look at this is in the way that you're seeing it too, Bruce, is it's a comprehensive package that really needs to be learned in totality in order to get the most significant results and benefits. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's no more questions on Facebook right now. Well, on Zoom, we have a question from Jen. She writes, do we experience results from past actions in this life and in prior lives? Yes, but the way that those happen isn't from this magical, mystical thing or this dark cloud following us around like some people might share. What happens there is when you are reborn from one life to the next, craving and residual memories moves forward into the new life, the new existence. And as you create new experiences or new situations, you have new decisions based on these cravings in this new life, that's what's actually producing the results from previous lives. So it's not like, okay, I murdered someone in a previous life, so therefore I'm going to get murdered in this life. It's not this one-for-one one kind of thing. Instead, what it is is the being didn't eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance in their previous life, so they're going to be reborn craving and residual memories come forward into this new life and now those same cravings from their previous life exist in this new life and now they start making unwise decisions based on this craving that they had in previous lives and now they start experiencing the results of those experiences in this life based on a prior lives craving thanks sir no more question for now all right so let's go into talking about the Eightfold Path as it relates to right speech. And we're going to use the words of the Buddha here because he's the originator. He's the discoverer. He's the declarer 
of the path to enlightenment. It's his teachings that will lead us to enlightenment. The modifications that have happened through oral tradition and all the different things that have happened over the last 2,500 years with the universal truth of impermanence affecting the Buddhist teachings, those aren't going to actually help us because people have made all these modifications and changes. But when you go back to the words of the Buddha and see what he actually taught, that's where you get the real insight of how to practice the teachings, and then you can experience the results. And the way that you cut through this impermanence is even when I share the words of the Buddha in these books and in these classes, you don't believe these teachings, but instead you learn them, then you reflect on them, and then you practice. So remember, building off of right intention from last week, which is the second step, right intention was all about the intention of renunciation, which is letting go or relinquishment, the intention of non-ill will, which is essentially having goodwill or a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And then the third aspect of right intention is the practice of harmlessness or the intention of harmlessness, being uninterested or incapable of causing harm to another being. Because when we're causing harm, then that harm's going to come back to us. So all of this moral conduct that you're going to learn today is all about not causing harm to others. Because if we cause harm through our speech, for example, since that's what we're about to talk about, then that harm is going to come back to us. So in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha is giving us this teaching to help us see what is right speech as it relates to the Eightfold Path. Then he's going to pull back some more layers and share with you the five factors of well-spoken speech which aren't directly a part of the Eightfold Path, but they're an outside teaching from the Buddha that plugs into the Eightfold Path. So there's this core central path, which gives us a certain level of detail, but then he has these other teachings that plug into it that provide us more detail. So just in terms of the Eightfold Path, what the Buddha taught for right speech, he says, in what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. So just improving your speech to this point where you're not lying and telling falsehoods or being deceptive in the way that you speak, that you're not having slander, which would be publicly degrading other people, that you don't have harsh speech. Instead, you speak gently in terms of your word choice, your tone, and your tempo. The way you speak should be gentle. And you refrain from frivolous speech. What frivolous speech would be is unbeneficial or unpurposeful speech. That you always be sure there's a purpose behind your speech. That it's not just unbeneficial because as you speak in that way, then people have to work really hard to figure out what it is that you're communicating if you're just yada, 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 yada. So you'd like to be purposeful and beneficial in the way that you speak. So if you just bring your speech up to this point where you're not lying, you're not slandering, you're not having harsh speech, but you're speaking gently and you're not having frivolous speech, this would be a good step forward. But then when you start to investigate the Buddhist teachings further and you look at what he taught in terms of speech, there's additional teachings beyond just this. And this is where you learn the five factors of well-spoken speech. And he gives some additional guidance to help you understand 
how you can structure your conversations and how you can talk as guidance, not as rules, but things that you can understand and then you can reflect on and then you can practice and see the truth for yourself. With the five factors of well-spoken speech, here's what he shared. Monks, possessing five factors, speech is well-spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach or disapproval by the wise. What five? One, it is spoken at the proper time. Two, what is said is true. Three, it is spoken gently. Four, what is said is beneficial. Five, it is spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Possessing these five factors, speech is well spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach or disapproval by the wise. So here, this is what he taught. This is what you can learn. And I'm going to go through these and share some details with you. In chapter five, I break down each one of these five factors in a lot of detail, and you can see the level of detail there. But I'll just share some aspects of these five factors to help you here in class. But I really suggest you read what is written in volume one of the book series in chapter five related to this. What he's talking about with proper time is if you're speaking at the wrong time, meaning you're interrupting other people, this is going to cause harm and therefore harm is going to come to you. People are going to interrupt you. Or if your mind is angry or frustrated or irritated or feeling fear or things like this, then that's the wrong time for you to speak because you're going to be speaking through those feelings and it's going to affect the way you talk and it's going to affect the results that you experience. So you've got to ensure that you're speaking at the right time, that you're not interrupting people. You need to make sure that your mind is prepared for the discussion. And then the third aspect is you'd like to be sure that the other person is able to speak as well. If you have some very important news to share with your life partner and they just walked in from work, that's the wrong time to jump on them and talk about something that's really important. Let them come in, put down their stuff, maybe have some food, have something to drink, maybe refresh them, you know, have them relax. And then you might even want to ask them, you know, is this a good time for you to talk about something really important? Because you don't know what's going on in their mind and you have something that you need to discuss. So if you can restrain your mind from the craving to speak to this person about a certain topic that you have to speak about, then you can ensure it's the right time and you'll be more successful in your conversations. And you don't need to believe this. You can reflect on this in situations where you didn't speak at the right time. Either you interrupted people, your mind wasn't in a good condition to speak, or the other person's mind wasn't in a good condition to be having a conversation. And you know that those conversations didn't go well. Ensure that what you say is the truth, that you always speak the truth. The Buddha says that even when he tells a joke, he speaks the truth. He doesn't even tell a joke with a lie in it. That's how important it is to tell the truth. Because if you have falsehoods in your speech, then people can't rely on what you say. People can't look to you for truthful conversations and truthful information because they're never quite sure whether you're telling the truth or not. So by being truthful in your speech, then people know that every time you open your mouth, it's the truth. And the way that you know that it's the truth is it's from your own experience. It's your direct experience that you've actually experienced something rather than just talking about what somebody told you or 
gossip or something you heard at the water jug or at the water cooler, instead of just spreading around falsehoods, only speak the truth and things that you know to be true 100%. This one about speaking gently, I mentioned that, that you speak with certain word choice, tone, and tempo. This is really important that you bring your speech to being gentle, that you're not using real harsh words, that you're not using a harsh tone, and the tempo that you speak, it shouldn't be real fast and real rapid because then the person has to do a lot of work to understand you. So if you can slow your speech down rather than having craving and running, 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 running and trying to get all your thoughts out, restrain the mind and speak at a very consistent pace so people can absorb what it is that you have to say and that you're using good word choice, tone and tempo. And then be sure when you're speaking that it's beneficial, that it's beneficial to others and that's beneficial to the situation and what it is that you're addressing. Your speech should be purposeful. If you're just speaking with frivolous speech and yada, 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 kind of running at the mouth, then again, the person has to do a lot of work to understand you. Then when they're doing all this work to understand you, they realize that it's not really beneficial to them or anyone else. And you're going to find that people aren't as interested to listen to you. And you're not going to be able to be as influential in your relationships when you're trying to maybe guide your children or you're trying to work with coworkers or you're talking to your boss or a customer or a neighbor or something like this. You're not going to be able to speak in ways that's beneficial because people are going to start learning. Uh, you know, every time he talks, he just, you know, diarrhea of the mouth and, you know, they're not going to be really interested to listen to you and understand what it is that you're speaking about. And then the fifth one here is a mind of loving kindness. We're going to talk about loving kindness as part of chapter 14, which is called the Brahma Viharas. These are four healthy mental states. But just so you understand a little bit about loving kindness, it's an active interest in seeing all beings be well. It's this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And when you're speaking, your speech should emanate from loving kindness. If there's any kind of hate or ill will or sarcasm or anything like that, it's going to affect your relationships. And this is why right intention has that component in there of non-ill will or loving kindness, because you have to have the thought or the thinking or the intention of loving kindness so that now it comes through in your speech. And this will ensure that your conversations go really well. Here in Thailand, there's a term that we use for someone who everybody listens to. It's called barami. A person who has barami is one who people listen to. The way you establish this is over time, within all your relationships, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, or what have you, you always speak with the five factors of well-spoken speech. When you speak at the proper time, what you say is true, you speak gently, you speak beneficially with a mind of loving kindness, you're not going to be causing any harm to any beings around you, and you will establish barami, or the one who people listen to. It will take you many months and years for this to get well established, but as you establish it, you'll see that your conversations go so much more smooth. You can think about what you're going to say beforehand, then you can say it, then you can reflect on what you said and ensure that you're not causing harm to other beings because anytime you cause harm, that harm is going to come back to you. And by cleaning up your 
conduct around your right speech, this is where you'll see that your professional and your personal relationships will really blossom. One of the things that you can do now that you've learned this to reflect on this is now you can start thinking about conversations that you've had in the past, conversations that went really, really well and conversations that didn't go well. The conversations that went well, you'll see that you and the other person were using all five of these factors. Without knowing what they were, you and that person were on a particular occasion practicing these five factors. You can kind of go through and see that in certain conversations. And in conversations that didn't go well and that erupted or arguments or conflict ensued, you can see that you weren't speaking in this way or the other person wasn't speaking in this way and then the conversation went horrible. But what you are looking to do from this point forward is now bring your conduct up closer and closer to this so that in all your conversations you're speaking with these five factors. And that's why it's gradual training gradual practice and gradual progress because you're not going to be able to snap your fingers and do this today. But over time, you can gradually bring your conversations and all your relationships up to practicing these five factors. Even if you miss just one factor, there's the potential that the relationship and the conversation is going to go awry. It's going to have problems and difficulties. So not only can you reflect on your past conversations, but now going forward, as you're starting to bring this into your life practice, in conversations that go really well, you can reflect on the conversation afterwards and look through these five factors, and you can see, ah, yes, I practiced all of these five factors. And then you're gonna have some conversations that don't go so well between now and going forward. And when that happens, rather than beat yourself up and feel guilty and all these other things, Instead, now you have some wisdom that you can look in the book, you can look at the resources that I share, and you can start reflecting and you can start seeing that you and or the other person wasn't speaking in this way. But this practice is all about your practice. So you would like to bring your practice up to this, and it's gonna take time. And you might even break it down where one day you just focus on speaking at the proper time, if that's something that you have a challenge with, if you know that you tend to interrupt people a lot, or you tend to speak at a time when your mind is discontent, or you have trouble determining whether somebody else is the right time for them to have a conversation. You might spend one day, one week, one month just focusing on speaking at the right time or the proper time. And then when you feel like you've mastered that, you can move on to the next one, speaking true or gentle or beneficial or with a mind of loving kindness. Because you can speak at the right time, you can say something that's true, you can speak gently, you can speak beneficially, but if you've got that sarcasm in there, you're not speaking with a mind of loving kindness, the conversation's gonna erupt, it's not going to go well for you. So it's really important that you gradually build this up as part of your life practice. Then in terms of what I shared in the book, in chapter five, in addition to this, there's a lot of other things that I kind of shared and kind of structured for you. But here on the next slide, you can see that I gave you some kind of shortcuts, that the Buddhist teachings are absolutely the truth around the five factors of well-spoken speech. But there's kind of this shortcut that if you're always speaking polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, that's kind of like a high level where the Buddhist five factors of well-spoken speech go much deeper. And not just in spoken language, but all forms of communication. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, 
all they had was speech. But now we've got text messages, we've got social media posts, we've got emails, we've got all different kinds of ways of communicating. So you can almost think about this as right communication. And when you have the time to send private messages and emails rather than having a craving and hurry up and rushing through and sending out your communication, instead, reflect on these five factors. Reflect on, is it also polite, kind, friendly, and respectful? If you forgot everything else, you can revert to this and kind of build that up as you're working on the five factors of well-spoken speech. The Buddha also talks at other parts of his teachings about not having speech that is idle chatter. Idle chatter would be just kind of rambling at the mouth, like you have a real craving to say something and you're just kind of chit-chat, 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 no real purpose behind it. It's unpurposeful speech, which includes things like gossip or harsh language or false speech with lies, deceit and slander. Deceit is being deceptive. Maybe you know the truth, the person asks you a question and you kind of slick and sly and you're being deceptive about the way you speak. Whereas if you're deceptive in your replies to people, then it's going to produce situations where people can't trust you and you're not going to be able to build me, the one who people listen to. So there's other aspects of what I share in this particular chapter on right speech. But one of the things that I learned growing up as a kid that's not Gautama Buddha's teaching, but is grandma's teaching, which is another kind of shortcut, is if you don't have something good to say, then don't say anything at all. Because if you're saying something bad or something unwholesome, it's just going to produce unwholesome results for you. So you should always be speaking in positive, uplifting, and encouraging ways. One of the interesting things about the Thai language here in Thailand is they don't have words for bad or ugly and other negative words like this. The word for bad is not good. The word for ugly is not beautiful. You know, we could go on and on with all the different vocabulary of Thailand. So you can actually incorporate this into your language instead of using words like bad or that are negative words that are harsh speech or, you know, people don't oftentimes like to hear these words. You can use, you know, not happy instead of sad, or you can say, you know, not good. And even though here in Thailand, they have that as part of their language in Thai, we can incorporate that into our English language. And then when we speak, we can always remain positive and just say not good or not happy or things like this. So that's something to think about is if you don't have something good to say, then don't say anything at all. That's what grandma would say. And it served me really well for quite a long time. So you can think about that. But the Buddhist teachings on the five factors of well-spoken speech, when you independently verify those, it really hits the nail on the head. When you bring your speech up to those, that's where you're going to see over a long-term consistent period that your relationships will improve. And this doesn't mean that just because you're using the five factors of well-spoken speech, that other people are going to speak to you polite, kind, friendly, respectful. It doesn't work that way. It's not like just because today you've decided to start speaking this way that now everyone in your life is going to start speaking to you that way because you've got unwholesome results from the past that you've got to work through. So if you've been speaking harsh and unfriendly and disrespectful to people in the past and those people are still in your life, just because you've chosen to now speak with right speech doesn't mean that 
you can snap your fingers and everyone else is going to speak to you that way. So you've got to build up your practice first and then speak that way for a consistent long-term period of time. And then as you build new friends and new relationships and current relationships that you're in, these will all start to gradually improve. It's like a log jam, like everything is stuck and you've been speaking in unwholesome ways. Maybe your life partner, your children, your friends, your family have been speaking in unwholesome ways and you've got to take out that log of unfriendliness and take out that log of harshness and take out that log of frivolous speech and now things can flow in your relationship much more better or much better <laughs> so let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about right speech you can put those into facebook youtube or zoom or you can raise your hand electronically in zoom well as for talking at the proper if others started talking to us when our mind is not ready to discuss a, a, something they want to talk about, what would be a good advice in this situation? Yeah, you can let people know if they start talking and they say something, you can say, you know, Bob, I would really enjoy speaking with you, but now's not the right time for me to speak or now's not the right time for us to have this conversation. Can we postpone this for another time? And keep in mind that the other person might have craving and they just really want to talk to you right now. So this is where you've got to be very skillful in the way that you speak. And you're not required to speak at any particular time. So you can use some of this language. That's one of the beauties about the Buddhist teachings is he spoke in natural ways that you can say and use his exact same language that you don't have to invent new ways of saying things. You can just say, it. you know, this isn't the right time for me to speak. This isn't our right time for this conversation. Let me spend some time thinking about this and I'll get back to you. We can have this conversation later. Or, you know, can we postpone this for a few days? I would like to handle a few things and then we can have this conversation a bit later. You know, these kind of things can be really helpful. You don't have to use the B word of Buddhism. You don't have to say, the Buddha said, you know, it's not the right time to speak, <laughs> you know, let's not speak that way. You can just speak naturally yourself and just say, you know, Barbara, I'd really be interested to speak with you about this topic, but unfortunately right now is not the right time. Let's postpone this conversation to another time. Can we discuss this at a different time other than right now? You know, and then with that nice, gentle way of speaking, then Barbara is either going to say, no, I've got to, you know, have an answer from you right now, or because if they have craving, or they might just say, sure, we can postpone that. So it doesn't mean that people are going to immediately heave to your demands, right? So that's why you're not speaking in demanding ways. Instead, you're speaking with these five factors. But even still, when you speak with five factors, the other person's craving might just keep pushing forward and you just have to be unwavering because if you know that it and you've made the decision that it's the wrong time for you to speak just because someone else is pushing you to speak doesn't mean that you should speak you know you should ensure that your mind is in a good place before you actually speak because otherwise you're going to cause harm and then that harm is going to come back to you so you need to be able to practice these five factors, but also restrain your own mind and be aware that other people's minds isn't necessarily going to be restrained. So you have to find very polite ways, maybe saying the same thing more than once before that person will understand that you're not willing to have this conversation right now. Are there situations in which 
lying is beneficial? Never. We should never lie at all, even when we tell a joke. The Buddha's teachings on this, he says, you know, someone who tells a deliberate lie, there's no evil that they're unwilling to do. So if you tell a lie, a deliberate lie, even a white lie, what we call white lie, there's no such thing as a white lie. There's no such thing as a good lie. Anytime you lie, it's going to affect your mind. Now, there are ways that you can say things in wholesome ways that you don't necessarily have to expose certain things about how you're feeling. In some situations, people feel like you have to say everything that's in your mind, but you don't have to. You can hold things back. Let's give a common example. You know, if you're getting ready to go out with your partner or something and they're like, hey, honey, do you like what I'm wearing? And maybe in your mind, you really don't like it, but you know that that's going to be unwelcomed discussion. It's going to be disagreeable to them. So rather than just say, you know, I don't like it, you should change it, you know, because it really doesn't matter. What's really important here is this person's looking for confidence. Obviously, they like what they put on or else they wouldn't have put it on. Your personal preference shouldn't come into the mix here. Instead, it's about them feeling confident when they go out with you that day. So if somebody says, honey, do you like what I'm wearing? You can say, oh, well, I think your smile is wonderful when you're wearing those clothes. That's outstanding. Or as long as you like it, that's what's important. You know, you can say these kind of things rather than say your negative view, like, oh, that looks horrible or that color doesn't go with your hair at all. You know, these kind of things. You might decide that that unwelcomed and disagreeable speech would put a damper on your event with your life partner. And rather than do that, just help them build confidence because that's what they're doing is they're looking to you for confidence and just give them that confidence. You know, just say something positive and uplifting and encouraging rather than deflating like, oh, that shirt just doesn't go with those shoes at all. Why did you pick that? You know, <laughs> that's just so negative and will really kind of damper the event that you're planning to go to. On Zoom, Jen has a question. She writes, what about discussions of, say, a scientific theory or a discussion of how to proceed with other people in a planning session when you don't know what is true from your personal experience? She continues saying, you might, for example, be discussing an idea with others to put your heads together and gain understanding. In a situation like this, you might not know if something is true or not. Yeah, if you don't know that it's true or not, you shouldn't speak it or you should preface what you're about to say that you don't know whether it's true. Because if you're in a situation where you're saying something and speaking an untruth, that's going to come back and harm you. And you should also feel comfortable saying, I don't know. Oftentimes when the ego is in there, when there's that conceit, that arrogance and the pride, we oftentimes aren't interested in the unenlightened state to just say, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. That should be a helpful answer in any situation that you say, I don't know. Or if you have come across some information that might be helpful to the situation, but you haven't actually seen the truth for yourself, you can actually share that information. You can say, I heard this idea. I haven't actually tested it for myself, but this is something that I can share is something that I've learned but I don't know whether it's 100% the truth. I'll just share it here to see if it helps in our discussion and in our planning session. You can preface things that you're going to say that way. That way people know that what you're about to share isn't something that you've actually tested for yourself. 
but in all situations as best as possible, you would like to only be speaking things that you know from direct experience. And in situations that you don't know, just say, I don't know. Because even enlightened beings, they don't know everything. An enlightened being doesn't mean that they know everything. They have wisdom, but they have wisdom about the natural laws of existence. And they've transcended all the difficulties in terms of the discontentedness in the mind. They've eliminated the discontentedness. So in terms of the Buddhist teachings, they will know those inside and out, having attained enlightenment as part of developing their wisdom. But someone who's enlightened isn't necessarily going to know how to fly an airplane, right? They're not going to necessarily know how to iron a shirt or cook spaghetti or something like that. So if somebody asked me, like, you know, how do you cook pad thai? I'd say, I don't know. I've cooked it a few times, but I don't remember how to cook pad thai. There's lots of other people around me that cook pad thai, so I just order it from them. <laughs> you know, so a person who's enlightened isn't going to know everything. They're just going to know the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings really well. An enlightened being isn't going to have ego or conceit or arrogance, so they'll be completely comfortable with saying, I don't know. So if your mind isn't comfortable with saying, I don't know, that's a really good practice to get in the habit of saying, I don't know in situations where you don't know. And then be sure you only speak in situations where you know the truth. On Zoom, Alaska writes, this is wonderful teaching. And actually, I want to ask about something. How was it possible for one person like Gautama Buddha to acquire and share all of this wisdom? I mean, the three universal truths, four noble truths, and these teachings about the Eightfold Path, this is really deep wisdom for one person to acquire. Yeah, what happens is a person who is going to become a Buddha and ultimately is a Buddha, they have been acquiring wisdom over multiple lifetimes. It's not just their last life, but multiple lifetimes they've been accumulating wisdom that culminates into understanding these natural laws and being able to see the truth of reality very clearly. A Buddha's mind has a certain quality that the average person doesn't have. A Buddha's mind functions in the same way as an average person, but they have deep memory, so much memory that they can remember countless details from their current life and past lives. And this ability to remember things over their current life and their past lives in such detail allows wisdom to accumulate in their last life, where now having had many experiences through direct experience, they've discovered these natural laws. Just like somebody at some point discovered the equation to describe the natural law of gravity, and they were able to write that out. And just like somebody discovered the planetary orbiting of all the different planets and the solar system and things like this, people figured it out based on wisdom that they had acquired. But a Buddha, in terms of these natural laws, would have been accumulating this wisdom over many lifetimes in their mind is such that it has the ability to retain knowledge and retain wisdom where an average person's mind it's like a hard drive it only has so much capacity and then it overwrites so like you probably remember very little about your childhood because during your childhood you remembered a lot about it but then as you aged new memories kind of overwrote your childhood memories but a Buddha's mind is so well refined and has this extra capability of retaining details from this life and past lives that their memory doesn't get overwritten. They can 
recall countless details about their existing life and past lives. And that's what allows them to accumulate wisdom to then ultimately be able to explain these. And it's all through their direct experience. They didn't have outside influences of teachers teaching them these teachings, but instead they discovered it themselves through their own direct experience and then being able to retain that over multiple countless lives. Thanks, teacher. Let's go to Miranda. Um, yes, sir. On Facebook, Amina asks, when we catch ourselves not using all the aspects of right speech, if we apologize immediately and move forward more mindfully, does that clean up the comma? It helps to clean up the comma, but it doesn't necessarily completely erase it. So that's a good step. If you're in a conversation and you realize you're not using right speech and you can put the brakes on and restrain the mind, it's better to do that than just continue to gossip or continue to have frivolous speech. It's like where you observe that your mind's not practicing these things, you can put the brakes on, restrain your mind, apologize, and then move on and aim to do better next time. But it doesn't necessarily eliminate your gamma because in that situation, even if you've gossiped a little bit, these people around you are getting used to you gossiping. And now people are going to start gossiping about you. Or if you're slanderous and speaking in the public and slandering people in deceitful ways, then that's going to be out in the public. And even if you pull the mind back and apologize for it, people are getting used to you speaking that way. So the only way to extinguish your gamma 100% is just to not do it. And that's why a lot of the teachings of the Buddha start with, you know, refrain from or abandon this because you have to eliminate it in order to eliminate your unwholesome gamma. If you've even done just a little bit, you're still producing unwholesome results. An apology doesn't erase that. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, that's all that we have on Facebook for right now. Well, no more question for the next picture. All right. Well, let's move into right action and talk about what the Buddha discussed in terms of right action. So far, we were talking about speech or communication. Now we're talking about action. Actions relate to our bodily actions and our movements with our body. In terms of what the Buddha put in the Eightfold Path, this first layer of detail, he says, in what monks is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is right action. These are the first three of the five precepts. We're going to be talking about the five precepts in chapter seven of this program, and it's in this book. The Buddha goes through and describes each precept in much more detail than he does here in the Eightfold Path, but this is him pointing to the five precepts because the detail is there. This is just like a placeholder and a place where he integrates the five precepts into the Eightfold Path. So here you'll learn more in chapter seven about the individual words of what does it mean about taking life and he'll go into detail about that. He'll go into more detail about taking what is not given and he'll go into extensive detail about sexual misconduct. So we're going to explore that in more detail in chapter seven. But some other things beyond just the Eightfold Path and what the Buddha shared here that I can share with you that essentially what he's talking about is he's talking about refraining from killing. He's talking about refraining from stealing, refraining from misusing sexual conduct that would harm others. And he goes into a lot of detail about what that is. And just as a heads up, 
it doesn't include same gender relationships. So oftentimes different traditions share that same gender relationships are unwholesome and so forth like this. The Buddha was aware of same gender relationships. He talks about it in his teachings. So they of course existed during his lifetime as well, but he never included it as part of his teachings on sexual misconduct because two loving consenting adults, whether they're opposite gender or the same gender, they're not causing harm because they love each other. They're loyal, they're committed, they're faithful, they're having a relationship and they happen to be having sexual contact. So there's no harm to another person that's being caused by two loving, consenting adults having a loyal, committed relationship. But we'll go into more detail about that when we talk about chapter seven, the five precepts. Even though the Buddha didn't talk about this in the Eightfold Path, in other parts of his teachings, you can understand that if you took substances that cause heedlessness, this is going to cause harm to you, to this being. So it's a bodily action that we're doing that can cause harm. Substances that cause heedlessness are substances that cause uncommonness, unalertness, unawareness, unmindfulness in the mind. And there's lots of harsh substances that do that, like heroin, cocaine, alcohol, things like that. But then there's also kind of lighter substances like caffeine can do that. Even excessive amount of sugar can even do that as well. So you have to be aware of the mind and observe what you're putting into the body. And it'll just take you time to look at that and decide when or if you would like to purge those things out of your life practice. And likewise, gambling would cause harm too, because when you're trying to win money through a game of chance, this is the craving of the mind. And most oftentimes people lose. And if you're using money that you earned righteously to gamble, now you're not going to probably be able to pay your bills or take care of things that you need to sustain your life for you and your family. So this can cause harm to you and your family if you don't have the resources you need to sustain your life. So in the five precepts, there's a lot more details about this that will help you to develop this moral conduct around right action. But if you can just understand that whenever we cause harm through our bodily movements, then it's going to cause harm to other beings, so therefore harm is gonna to come to us. So notice here that the Buddha didn't say, don't punch somebody in the face, right? He didn't say that because it's kind of a given if you understand right action and that when we cause harm through our bodily actions, harm's gonna come back to us. If we punch somebody in the face, well, they might punch us back and that's the natural law of gamma. Or they might get a knife or a gun and shoot us or kill us with a knife. Or their friends or their family might attack us. Or a police officer might come and arrest us, right? Who knows what might happen in that situation, but when we're causing harm through our bodily actions, then that harm is going to come to us. So you should think about this in terms of the detail that the Buddha is providing here, but also think of it more generally. Like even when you're walking down the aisle of a bus or an airplane, you should be very aware of your body and not just flail around and kind of hit people as you're walking down the aisle of an airplane with a suitcase or something like that. Because if you're banging into people, you're not being conscious, you're not being thoughtful about the way you're walking down the aisle of an airplane or a bus or something like this, then you're causing harm through your bodily actions and then this harm is going to come back to you. So you should always be aware of your bodily movements and ensure that you're not causing harm. And again, this is really 
helpful when you have right intention because that intention of renunciation, of letting go, so if anger arises in the mind, you can let that go rather than allow it to come into your bodily actions. And if you have the intention of non-ill will or loving kindness, then your bodily actions, you won't be interested in producing bodily activity that would cause harm to another being. And the same thing with the intention of harmlessness, that if you're practicing that, then your bodily actions won't be harmful. The challenge that we oftentimes experience is that our intentions, our speech, and our actions aren't in sync. So you might have certain intentions that are wholesome, but then in your life, if you've been speaking or you've had bodily actions that weren't completely wholesome or purified through these right speech and right actions, then even with the most wholesome intentions, your speech and actions aren't in sync with that. So therefore you're causing harm and harm's going to come back to you. So not only do you need to practice each one of these steps individually, but you need to be sure that these are all in sync, that you have right intention, right speech, and right action, and that you're practicing in a way that's not causing harm to others. Because in that situation, now you're not causing harm. So therefore harm won't come to you. And you can make wiser and wiser decisions in doing this. And if you've been causing harm in the past, that's all in the past. You're going to have to experience the results of that. But eventually you'll continue to practice more and more wholesomeness and you won't be producing new harm in the world. You'll just be practicing wise decision making, making wholesome decisions about your intention, speech and actions. And then you'll experience wholesome results over time. So if you've done things in the past that don't match up to these, it's okay. It's in the past. You can't change that. All you can do is change right now. And what you're looking to do is you're looking to purify your speech and purify your actions. And that really starts with purifying your intentions. And it also starts with right view, understanding that any emotions and any feelings that you experience, you're causing it yourself. Whereas if you thought that and blamed other people for causing your anger, you might feel justified in harsh speech or you might feel justified in your bodily actions to harm somebody if you thought they are causing your anger, which is wrong view. But if you have right view and you know that you're causing your own anger, frustration, irritation, and all those other discontent feelings, then by the time you move into intention, speech, and actions, and you know that any harm that you cause is only going to come back to you, then you can have more restraint and more control. Essentially, what the natural law of gamma in this Eightfold Path is showing you is that if you kick up sand into the air, the air is going to blow that back in your eyes. And as you learn more and more that every time you speak with wrong speech, it gets blown back into you or you practice wrong action, that's going to get blown back into you. You're not going to enjoy getting this sand blown back into your eyes. So stop kicking up the sand. And the way that you stop kicking up the sand is you start practicing each one of these steps more and more and you bring up your practice more and more to what the Buddha is sharing here in all aspects of the Eightfold Path. Then if you don't kick up the sand, there's no sand to blow back to you. So let's see what questions you guys have around right action. As for the first one, uh, you're refraining from killing. Uh, does this apply to uh, other beings? I mean, not only for humans? Yes, this is all beings and it's intentional killing. 
oftentimes people misunderstand the Buddhist teachings around the first precept. Right here, this is a real shorthand way of translating, but you'll see his actual words when we talk about the five precepts in chapter seven. He says, among other things, to live compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. And then in other parts of his teachings, he gives you the teachings of what a living being is. And he describes a living being as having the five aggregates. And this is something that we discuss and share in the Pali Canon in English study group, which is the program after the group learning program. But he teaches these five aggregates so you can discern and determine what is a living being. And anytime you cause harm to a living being, then that harm is going to come back to you. So if you're killing, there has to be a certain amount of hatred and ill will in the mind, a certain amount of anger to intentionally kill another being. So you would like to live compassionately, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. And this is going to help you to reduce your anger, hatred, and ill will. But there's going to be situations where you're walking down the street and you don't even know that there's an ant under your foot and you've just squashed an ant. But there's not intention behind it. So the Buddha never taught preserve all life at all costs or never kill anything. He didn't teach that because it would be impossible for us to go through life without killing anything. What he teaches is don't intentionally kill other beings. But as you walk down the street, you're going to probably be stepping on something that inadvertently ends up dying. But since that wasn't your intention, there was no anger, hatred, and ill will behind it. So this particular aspect of right action and this particular precept is helping you to purify the mind of that anger, hatred, and ill will. And there's other parts of this path in terms of loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness that helps to transform the anger, hatred, and ill will. But here is part of right action. That's what he's sharing with you is to not intentionally cause the harm through taking of life of another being. Kindly, would you elaborate more about uh, gambling? What is uh, harm being caused uh, when gambling? Sure. For yourself, if you're gambling, there's going to be a certain amount of craving that arises up in the mind that you're craving money or you're craving this excitement of the win. And that craving, the more that you allow that to dwell in the mind, the wider and the deeper and the more profound it's going to get in the mind because you're encouraging that unwholesome quality of craving to arise in the mind. And as you're sitting there betting and gambling and trying to win, this craving is just going to keep growing and growing and expanding in the mind. And that's how people get addicted to something like gambling. And then as you do that, then you're going to be exhausting your resources and you're going to find that it's very difficult to sustain your life if you're constantly losing. And everybody's got to lose when they're gambling. You know, they don't build casinos out of money on trees. They build these casinos based on the money that they're winning. And these casinos are usually quite elaborate because the games are slanted in the favor of the people who are running the gambling operations. So if you're gambling, then that means there's craving for wealth. There's this craving for excitement, these pleasant feelings. And the more you allow that to grow and expand in the mind, it's going to 
affect you in terms of your resources and what you're able to provide for sustaining your life and sustaining the life of your family. Thanks, sir. No more question for now. All right. The next one to talk about is right livelihood. First, let's talk about what a livelihood is, and then we'll talk about the Buddhist teachings on this. What a livelihood is, is it's how you choose to sustain your life. It's potentially a doctor, a sanitary worker, a cook, a food server, a therapist, a nanny, a house cleaner, you know, you you name it. There's going to be various ways of sustaining someone's life, a certain livelihood. Being a Buddhist teacher is a livelihood. This is how we sustain our life is through some contribution to society. And for some people, not only do they have a certain active occupation, so to speak, but for some people, they volunteer their time or they're retired or they provide child care. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean you're employed and getting a paycheck. It's about how you contribute to society. So a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad, that's their livelihood. They're not necessarily getting a paycheck from an employer, but that's what they're choosing as their livelihood. Or someone who is retired, you know, their livelihood now becomes how they contribute to society in terms of if they're doing volunteer work or something like this. So the Buddha provides a teaching here very generally in the Eightfold Path, but then in other parts of his teachings, he expands it. So here in the Eightfold Path, he just says, in what monks is right livelihood? Here, monks, a noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. A noble disciple is someone who's studying with the Buddha really closely, a really dedicated student. And what he's just saying here in the Eightfold Path is that they've given up wrong livelihood and they're now practicing right livelihood. And then in other parts of his teaching, he deepens what is right livelihood. And here's just one portion of that. And then in volume 12 of the book series that I share, there's a much deeper teaching on right livelihood and is fully exhausting about how it explains how to actually acquire right livelihood. But just to get you started in cleaning up your moral conduct, you can look at these five aspects of these trades that the Buddha guides us to not conduct business around any of these particular trades. He says business in weapons, business in living beings, business in meat, business in substances that cause heedlessness, and business in poisons. A household practitioner should not engage in these five trades. So these five trades are going to cause harm in the world, so therefore harm is going to come to you. And you can go through each of these five trades and you can reflect on them and see how they're causing harm and how harm would come to you. Weapons are things like selling guns and missiles or making guns and missiles or knives and things like this, weapons that are going to cause harm. And I can give you different examples of how people who have been involved in those trades have had difficulties, right? There's a famous case just recently that there was an instructor who was teaching a child how to shoot a gun and they handed them an automatic weapon and then the girl pulled the trigger, the gun reared back and shot bullets and actually killed the instructor, right? Because this is business and weapons. Even instructing and teaching how to use weapons, it's going to cause harm in the world and therefore harm's gonna come to you. 
Business and living beings are things like selling animals or human trafficking or slaves or things like this. And once again, you can look at this and you can see that someone who's being human trafficked, if you're the person who's responsible for that, harm's going to come to you. And also, if you are the person who's a sex worker, harm's going to come to you in terms of your reputation, in terms of the physical body can become injured, in terms of sexual diseases and things like this. If someone's a sexual worker, they oftentimes get murdered or raped or robbed or things like this. Business and meat, this would be somebody who's selling meat. They would have had to kill animals or somebody would have killed animals in order for the meat to be sold. So therefore, it's causing harm to those animals. And we can see nowadays in the world that this is causing harm, that by having all these animals that are being farmed, it's causing harm to the environment. So one of the interesting things here with the Buddhist teachings is he's giving the guidance of what we should or should not consider as an, a livelihood, but he doesn't necessarily say exactly what the harm is. But now, 2,500 years later, we can see the actual harm, that our environment gets harmed, the animals get harmed. Even when we eat the meat, it's causing harm to our physical body in terms of sickness and illness. But when or if you choose to kind of move towards cleaning those things up is your choice. But this is what the natural law of gamma is helping you to understand. And then it's up to you in your own independent practice of when or if you choose to move in a certain direction. Businesses and substances that cause heedlessness. This would be intoxicants and substances like we talked about heroin and cocaine or even lighter substances like caffeine and things like this. You can think about a drug dealer on the side, walk, selling uh, substances that cause heedlessness. This individual is causing harm in the community, so therefore harm is going to come to them. Of course, they have the likelihood of going to jail. They have the likelihood of getting murdered. They have the likelihood of getting robbed or beat up. They have the likelihood of getting hooked on that substance themselves and becoming addicted to drugs or whatever substance they're selling. So by causing harm in the world and selling substances that cause heedlessness, that harm can then come to you. And then business and poisons are things that are meant to kill other beings. Poisons will kill others. And if you're selling poisons, this is going to cause harm to other beings that they're going to die as a result of these poisons. And now this harm can come to you because if you're dabbling in poisons, you know, those poisons could easily get in contact with your skin, with your eyes. You could digest those things. Other beings are interacting with these things. Maybe your children or people around you get into these substances. So it can cause harm to you and because it's going to cause harm to others. So therefore, that harm is going to come back to you. So this is kind of like the first layer of right livelihood that you should look to purify your livelihood and not practice any of these livelihoods. And then there's additional teachings that the Buddha shares. I'll share some additional ones here. But there's even deeper ones beyond this. The Buddha says here, And what monks is wrong livelihood? Scheming, flattery, hinting, belittling, pursuing gain with gain. This is wrong livelihood. Again, there's some other teachings that he goes into much more detail than this. But this is a level of detail that you can maybe take in now and start thinking about, start reflecting, and start practicing. Scheming is like corruption. If you had a certain livelihood and then you had corruption as part of that, that's going to cause you harm because if you get found out for having corruption on the job, you can very easily lose your job. 
flattery would be trying to flatter people, like flatter customers or business partners, just in order to get some beneficial result for yourself. Hinting would be like having deceptive practices. Belittling would be to belittle other vendors or other people who are in your same occupation in order to get you to ascend and look better in the world. If you belittle others, it might make you look good with certain people, but other people you're not going to look good with. And that's ultimately going to harm your livelihood because as you belittle other people in your same field, then you're going to suffer damage because you've been slandering people as part of your speech. So by belittling others and making yourself look so great, there's that arrogance and that pride. And coming from a place like that in your livelihood, then pretty soon you're going to discover that people are going to look at you in negative ways and it's going to be detrimental to your business. Pursuing gain with gain. This would be having a job where you just take the job just to make money. You don't really have a real interest in the position. You don't really have a real interest in the product or the service, but you just do it in order to make money. It's kind of like a, almost like a dead end job where you just are only pursuing money. That's your only purpose there because there's selfishness and there's greed in the mind. This is going to be detrimental to your mind because you're going to just be making decisions based on profit and profit margins and make money, make money, make money, make money, you're not going to be making wholesome decisions in terms of how can I benefit the world. In terms of getting to a right livelihood, what you see in volume 12 of this book series is the Buddha provides teachings of how to help you get to a point where your decisions in your livelihood aren't affected by craving anger and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. That instead you focus on helping through your livelihood. And when you can do that, you never have to worry about money. Because as long as you're providing some benefit and some value through the way you sustain your life and your livelihood, people will always be willing to pay you for that and helping you to sustain your life because you're helping others. That's the natural law of gamma, that if you're causing harm to others, harm's going to come to you. But also, if you're helping others, then you're going to have more than enough people that are interested in helping you, so you won't need to worry about money. But if you just pursue gain with gain, and you're just pursuing money for the sake of pursuing money, then your decisions are going to be tainted and polluted with that craving. So let's see what questions you guys have about this. Uh, Marcy has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Boston. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I work at an Ace Hardware, and a part of one of the products that they sell is obviously, you know, rat traps, mouse traps, things of that nature, which is obviously um, a business that um, is in the livelihood of taking lives. Um, I've found that I try to offer the harmless um, catches, like, you know, the cages that just catches the animals and to release them. But because I'm employed by this company that sells this product, am I then partaking in the wrong livelihood? The answer to that question is yes, you are. But it's also important to understand that the world is transitioning, that we're not in a place where massive numbers of people understand these teachings and that these teachings have permeated into communities where there might not be a really true wholesome way for you to practice. In some communities, this might be the only job that's really available that you have option to take. So 
in that situation, it would be ideal if you move towards a livelihood where you're not having to sell poisons. But again, it's when or if you choose to do that and you shouldn't make real drastic changes in your life because we understand that there's this gradual training, this gradual practice and gradual progress. And these teachings need to permeate into the world more and more so that then more and more people will start to look for the harmless options of taking care of infestations or situations where rodents or other animals are coming into our dwellings, we can have products that don't cause harm. But then what you're going to also understand as part of the Buddhist teachings is that he didn't teach preserve all life at all cost. Because in a situation where there's an infestation that can't be taken care of in a harmless way, or there are certain animals that are causing harm, like we had termites here at our house, in certain situations, you need to eradicate these beings from your home and there's no other choice but to potentially kill them. We tried some different options with herbs and tried different vendors and things like this, but ultimately I think what my wife decided on is that they drilled these holes around our house and they put this poison in those things and then the insects ate that and took it back to their nest and ended up killing the whole nest. But in that situation, as being part of the animal realm, these beings are experiencing their gamma as being part of that realm. So the Buddha didn't say preserve all life at all costs. Instead, what is happening here is these animals, these insects of termites, they're causing harm. They're eating the wood. And if we just sit here and let them eat the wood and our house deteriorated, we wouldn't be having loving kindness and compassion for ourselves and for the beings that live in this home. So because these insects were causing harm, then harm came to them in order to eradicate them from our home. But what you might find as time goes on and people start learning these teachings more and more is we might find ways to eradicate a home of something like termites in a way that doesn't cause harm. But that doesn't exist today and it may not ever exist. And if it never exists, then you can understand that the Buddhist teachings aren't preserve all life at all costs. It's live compassionately for the welfare of other living beings. So if you've done research or your other people have done research to try to determine if there's a way to eliminate these animals without causing harm, then that's ideal. But in certain situations, then other people or us, we might have to actually choose to kill the being in order to show compassion to the beings that are living in this home. And that's the animal's gamma for being in the animal realm and them causing harm. And that's one of the reasons why once a being is born into the animal realm, it's so difficult to get out of that realm. And they keep being reborn over and over and over again, because those beings are oftentimes killing and stealing food and having sexual misconduct, it's very difficult for them to move on and get out of the animal realm. So the ideal thing would be to move into a job or a livelihood where you're not needing to sell poisons, but you can do that gradually and decide when or if the right time for you is to do that. Well, no more questions, Richard. All right. Well, I've just got a summary to kind of summarize this for you guys in a way that can help you to kind of more solidify what we just talked about and kind of keep it fresh in your mind is that 
with right speech, what the Buddha is talking about here with all those details that you need to learn to ultimately get to enlightenment, but in a more general way, you can think of it as no harm through all verbal conduct, all communications such as verbal, text, chat, post, emails should be harmless. And he's giving you the guidance of how to do that through all of his teachings, specifically the ones that are shared in chapter five. And you'll find some others as you move further into the book series, into volume three and some of the other volumes. He elaborates even more on right speech above and beyond what's in volume one. Right action is no harm through our bodily conduct. All bodily actions should be harmless. And there the Buddha gives you like three examples. And I added a couple extras based on his other teachings. But remember, even punching someone in the face, even though he didn't say that, that's a bodily action that's going to cause harm. Even walking down the aisle of an airplane and bouncing into people without being aware of what you're doing with your body, that's causing harm as well. If you move around your body too quickly and you break a glass in somebody's home or you break a window or you scratch somebody's car, that's causing harm through your bodily conduct too. So the Buddha didn't say, you know, don't use your body to scratch somebody's car. But if you understand this high level teaching of don't cause harm through any bodily conduct, then you know that if you did that, that would cause harm to others. So therefore harm is going to come to you. And in that situation, based on something that Amina was talking about, yes, we should apologize, but also we should look to fix that. Because if we know that we cause this harm, like scratching someone's car or damaging someone's property, we can make amends, we can apologize, and we can offer to fix it or buy a new one or something like this, replacing the product. So we will cause harm all the way up until the mind's actually enlightened. You're going to still be causing harm. So you're going to need to understand how to apologize. You're going to need to understand how to fix situations when you are causing harm and then bring your conduct up to a point with speech, actions, and livelihood where you're not causing harm. In the livelihood here that the summary is not to cause harm through decisions to sustain your life based on how you choose to sustain your life, ensure that you're not causing harm to others. So you could be a doctor, for example, and that's a right livelihood because you're not causing harm as being a doctor. But if you were stealing medicine and selling it on the black market as part of being a doctor, your livelihood is purified in terms of your livelihood, but your action of stealing is such that it's causing harm. So there's a difference here between the livelihood and our speech and our actions. So we can have a purified livelihood, but perhaps our speech and our actions in our livelihood are such that they're causing harm to our coworkers, our customers, or somebody else that's involved in our livelihood. So it's important to ensure that you understand that your livelihood is how you choose to sustain your life in terms of whether you have a certain occupation or your volunteer or your stay-at-home mom or dad or any of these other ways, ways that we're contributing to the world and helping the world. And then because of that, we're sustaining our life as part of that. So this is everything that I had to share with you guys today. I would like to see if there's any questions that you guys have on any of these things before I share with you uh, what we're going to be doing in our future classes. Seems that we have a question on Zoom from Jeanne. She writes, thank you, teacher David Marcy. Feel compassionate for your situation. 
we have struggled with the rat infestation in our basement. Carpenter ant nests in the walls. It is a challenge to know what to do. Nowadays, you know, we're living in the information age where we can get online, we can search for things, we can ask other people. And if you do your due diligence and you find some options and they're working that don't cause harm, then great, you can use those. But there's going to be situations that you aren't able to rid your dwelling of these insects or these infestations without killing the beings. And that's where you can understand that the Buddhist teachings here are not preserve all life at all costs. Because if you tried to preserve all life at all costs, it would be utterly impossible to live on this world. We'd have to take a broom and sweep the pathway in front of us as we're walking. Everybody would have to carry a broom in order to ensure that we're not walking and killing another being. So you do your due diligence, you live compassionately for the welfare of other living beings, and that's that due diligence to try to find a non-harmful way to eliminate these insects or animals from your home and allow them to move on in living their own life. But if you're unable to figure out a way to do that, or if that just doesn't exist, and you need to purchase things or hire somebody to come kill them, then this is their gamma of being reborn into the animal realm. And they're causing harm to the dwelling, so therefore harm is coming to them. That's the natural law of gamma. And animals are such that they can't cultivate the wisdom of this natural laws of existence and this natural law of gamma. So they incur a lot of harm because they're causing a lot of harm and they can't cultivate the wisdom in order to move beyond it. But ultimately, eventually, those beings will make their way to the human realm or the heavenly realm and have the opportunity to attain enlightenment. But in that animal existence, it's very difficult for them. And we've all been in those animal existences. We've all been countless animals in the past. But when we cause harm in any shape or form or fashion as an animal or a human being or any other being, then that harm's going to come back to us. So you can go forward with certain things after you've lived compassionately for the welfare of other living beings if you need to make a decision to kill those beings in order to show compassion to you and your family who's living in that home, then that's what you have to do in order to show compassion to those living beings, those humans that live in that home. No more questions, Steve. All right. Well, I'll just end today's class by thanking all of you for joining and starting to understand the Eightfold Path. As you can see here, the teachings of the Buddha become very deep and very profound and such that you can actually independently verify them. So now that you've learned these, you can reflect on them and you can practice them. You're not going to be able to snap your fingers and put them into practice right away. That's why we teach this as an overall understanding, kind of a broad view, while also getting really deep into the Eightfold Path in this three-part series. But then we're going to be talking about it again in chapter five. We're going to be discussing the Eightfold Path again because you need to hear these teachings, read these teachings, and practice these teachings. Get guidance on these teachings by reaching out and asking for clarification multiple times before you'll actually be able to bring your practice up to the point where you're practicing these all the time. And it's going to be gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress or results. You can't snap your fingers and instantly do any of this stuff. And that's why it takes gradual training in order to get to enlightenment. Enlightenment is not instantaneous. 
you need to acquire wisdom through independent verification and gradually training the mind. That's what actually produces the enlightened mind and you make decisions that are very wise and produce only wholesome results. So next Sunday, we're going to be doing the third part of this three-part series, which is the mental discipline. We're going to be talking about right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And here you're going to see where the Buddhist teachings really launch into some amazing things that are really going to help you to purify the mind and really brings all of this Eightfold Path full circle so that you can see how it all fits together. So we're going to be doing that next Sunday. And if you'd like to read before and or after class, this is all in chapter five, everything that I'm teaching here today and next class. It's all part of chapter five. This Wednesday, we're going to be doing part two of our four-part series of breathing mindfulness meditation. So far this past Wednesday, I talked about meditation and taught about breathing mindfulness meditation and how to develop a meditation practice. This Wednesday, we're going to actually do meditation together and start helping you to build up your practice because you're going to need to build up your breathing mindfulness meditation to two to three sessions per day of 30 minutes or more. But you gradually do that. Some people start with just five or 10 minutes per session. But over time, as you start accumulating the benefits, you're going to start being interested in expanding your sessions for longer and longer. So this Wednesday will be the first session that we do as a group together. And we'll do many of those as part of our Wednesdays. We'll be doing many different meditations together, but this will be our first one now that I've taught it on this past Wednesday. And we're going to be doing this four-part series of breathing mindfulness meditation and then moving into a four-part series of loving-kindness meditation. And these are the two primary forms of meditation that the Buddha taught. By learning these, you're going to be able to really deepen your practice. Rather than learning 10, 20, 50, 100 different meditations, which isn't what the Buddha taught anyway, rather than spreading yourself really thin like that, you can just learn these two And there's two specialized meditations that we kind of use sometimes, depending on what's going on in someone's practice, but everyone's going to need to know these two. The Buddha didn't teach 50 or 100 different meditations because the problems of the unenlightened mind come down to craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. And these two forms of meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, address two of the major problems. So that's why I'm spending time here at the beginning of the program to help you build up your breathing mindfulness meditation practice and your loving kindness meditation practice. And that's what's going to help you to eradicate the conditions that are keeping the mind trapped in this unenlightened state so that you can move past the struggles and the difficulties that you experience on a daily basis. So thank you all for joining for today's class. I'll see you either next Sunday or maybe this Wednesday, perhaps even both of those days. So have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. 
A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.